Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. A few days ago, in the middle of the night, my baby boy Peter woke up um, crying. He's been doing this lately. If, if you're a parent, you might remember that around age two, it's pretty common for children to wake up in the middle of the night and to be crying, to be upset. Uh, they haven't had a dream. It's not, there's not a thing that scared him. It's uh, just sort of this hyperarousal, this kind of night terror that happens. Um, anyway, being a good dad, I uh, sleep with earplugs in. Uh, and, and so I came awake, Maylin was nudging me, and she nudged me a little harder. I, I got out of bed, I went into the room to find him. Uh, the poor boy was crying so hard at this point that he had started hiccuping a little and, and wheezing. Uh, so I picked him up, and I carried him into the living room. I turned on the light to check him. He, he was fine. Uh, I turned off the light, and I went and sat in the rocking chair, and I held him close to me. And we started to rock back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he started to slowly calm down. After a little while, Maylin came out and she took him and held him and rocked him back and forth, back and forth. This is a pretty familiar scene. This, it's common in our house. It's actually common in houses around the world. For I would be willing to bet that all of you have uh, p- played a part in that sort of dance before. Maybe as a parent, but definitely as a child, probably for each of you, there was a moment in your life where someone held you and rocked you back and forth, back and forth. And as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded that there's actually research on this kind of thing, that um, this back and forth pattern, that the experience of this over and over, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times, is actually a critical part of children's development. It does something to them. It changes the way that their brain works. The child begins to recognize in themselves this feeling of distress partly because of the mother or father's presence. They recognize there's a difference between the way they're feeling and the way the mother's feeling, and it begins to teach them how to self-regulate. Over hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times, this becomes the basis for the ability to self-soothe, to recognize, I'm upset right now, and to calm down. And that becomes sort of the foundation then for the rest of life, how you deal with stress and how you deal with uh, with panic or with other situations that need, require you to draw on that sense of peace. There's a way in which we create one another in community, just as the mother and the baby or the father or the caretaker and the baby um, begin to create that ability for self-regulation. We create one another. And that idea of being dependent upon one another, even for our self-understanding, is actually a thoroughly Christian principle It's related to what we call the sacrament of marriage. We're going to talk about the sacrament of marriage today. That's where our lectionary has us in in the readings. Uh, And my hope is that in exploring the nature of marriage, we get a better understanding of why it matters to the church and to God. And we can understand how we as persons, whether you're called to marriage or you're called to a life of of single-hearted devotion to the Lord, that either way, you're called to live out a life with Christ that's represented in marriage. Today, our lectionary has us in one of the foundational texts for understanding Christian marriage, Genesis 2. Uh, But Genesis 2 is really an explication, a sort of expansion, if you will, of something that happens in Genesis 1. It's like in those superhero movies where one of the heroes will throw out a line. You know, Obi-Wan says, oh yeah, I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. I I can't remember what he actually says, something like that. And then a little while later, maybe 30 years later, when the studio needs more money, they make a movie about it. Okay, that's Genesis 2 to Genesis 1. 
There's that relationship there. So let's kind of retell the story of creation, and I'll show you how it slips in. All right, so Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and here's how he did it. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. God separated the sea from the sky, and it was good. God caused the dry land to appear, and it was good. God made the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field. He made humanity, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. It was very good. But, you get into Genesis 2, something's not good. There's this moment in the creation of humanity where there's something that's missed, it says, God formed Adam out of dust, but it was not good. There's a scratch right in the middle of this grand symphony. And what's, the problem is that Adam can't fulfill his purpose. And we know that because the next line talks about Adam being able to fulfill his purpose. But what was Adam's purpose? What was he supposed to do? We find that back in Genesis 1. It says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and bring it under dominion. So let's take the second part first, because then we're going to spend some time talking about the first part. Bring it under dominion means to bring the whole world into the glory of God, to make what's true in Eden true across the entirety of the cosmos. But here's what I want to focus on today. Why does God care about the fruitful part? Why be fruitful and multiply? Because if you think about it, Adam isn't going to die, right? If he's in the garden, it's the tree of life, it's not like he's subject to mortality, why does God care that he's fruitful? Why does the church care about marriage? I don't know if you've asked yourself that before. Why does the church care about children? Why do we call marriage a sacrament? There are lots of good things in life that we don't call sacraments. Working is a good thing, right? Adam's put there to work before the fall, but no one calls getting a job a sacrament, right? Singing is a good thing. Singing is how we bring glory to God. It's part of that whole, that whole calling to bring the world under dominion is through singing, through making truthful beauty. But we don't call singing a sacrament. Here's, here's the reason. Marriage does something different. The reason marriage, which includes the family, right? It's not just the day of marriage, but the sort of life of marriage, is a sacrament is because being a community of persons, being in relationship, a community of persons that begets persons is part of the image of God. Let me say that again. Being a community of persons that begets persons is part of being in the image of God. One of the ways that human beings image God is that we exist in these generative, it's a fancy word, you know, begetting, creating community of persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a generative community of persons. The Father begets the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Think about the, that disclosure. What do we know about God? How does he reveal himself? He reveals himself as God the Father, God the Son. So part of who God is, the Father is, is that he's the Father of the Son. That relationship isn't secondary. It's a key part of his, of his essence, if you will. The Son is the Son of the Father. They exist in relation to each other eternally. And human beings, it's not just that we reproduce physically, that's part of what's going on here, but there's a deeper level. We create new persons. Think back to that image with Peter. This rhythmic process in which we discover and produce one another as persons is part of what we do in relationship with one another. So why does the family matter to God? Because this is what God does, and God has made us in his image to do that. Part of the way we image God is by the fact that we exist in these relationships with one another. 
But let's go back to Adam. Okay, so back to the garden. Like I said, there's a problem because Adam is alone. And when God says it's not good, he doesn't mean this isn't the way I like it. This isn't, you know, if we go out for lunch and I, we go get Indian food and I say, yeah, that's not my favorite. You know, I say, oh, well, this wasn't very good. Uh, I wouldn't say that. But if I did, that's not, what, that's not what God means. When God says it's not good, this is the Lord of the universe saying something is not good. This is serious. There's something defective here that Adam is alone. He can't be the image of God that he was made to be because he is alone. And so God brings all the animals to him, but the animals aren't persons. This is, pay attention to this in the text. None of them is called a living being. It says God formed Adam out of dust and he breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. But that's not said of any of the animals. That's only used of Adam. So none of them can exist in this kind of relationship with him. So verse 21, God causes Adam to fall asleep and then he pulls from his very self a thing that is both Adam and not Adam, a thing that is both Adam and different from Adam, distinct from Adam, the same kind of thing and yet distinct. So God draws from his side the woman and he builds her out of the material of Adam. Now I want to pause there, right? Because this can go in lots of different ways. So I want to be really clear about what the text is saying. There's no idea of subservience here. That's not why she's drawn out of Adam's side. What the text is saying is that the woman is made of the same stuff as Adam. The living being that God breathed his Holy Spirit into is then in the woman as well. That's why she's drawn out of Adam's side. She's not a different thing, right? She's the same kind of thing and yet distinct. And so how does Adam respond to that? Well, there are two really important things that happen. The first is that Adam responds in the way that creation always responds when the glory of God is revealed, with the mixture of beauty and truth, with poetry. Adam responds with poetry, with the first poem, and you should pay attention in the Bible whenever someone goes into poetry, right? Because often where there's poetry in the Bible, it's because God's glory has just been revealed. So think of Miriam on, on the banks of the Red Sea, right? Think of David throughout the Psalms. Think of Hannah at the birth of Samuel or the, the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation, right? And we could go on with Simeon and Zechariah and all through Scripture, all the way up to Revelation. Wherever the glory of God is, humans respond with beauty and truth. Poetry. But Adam's the first. Now he, now he has become the being he was supposed to be. Now creation is set to rights. Remember that bringing under dominion has to do with the glory of God. Now things are right because Adam is, is singing. He's doing poetry. But the other thing I want you to note is the way that the moment the woman is created, the man is also created and his name changes. You don't, this is hard to see because in our English translation, we just translate everything as man. But up to this point, Adam hasn't been called man. He's been called Adam. Adam means the thing out of the dirt, like the dirtling, if you will. What do you call a thing? Well, if we don't know what it is, you might call it the thing it's made out of. So what is Adam? Adam's the dirtling. Um, but when he sees her, he says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That is, he recognizes himself in her. All of a sudden he sees her and he knows who he is. And so it says, she will be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man, right? Um, Isha is just Hebrew for woman, uh, but she, it doesn't say she was taken out of Adam. That's a different Hebrew word. She was taken out of Ish. It's a new word. Adam has a new identity in that moment. His identity is created in community with the woman. 
We create one another in community with one another. And all of this points to a deeper reality, all right? All of this is a picture that points to something that's more real. It points to a deeper creation. So now I want to talk about marriage as a sacrament. We've sort of laid the groundwork. Now we're ready. Sacrament's an odd word. In the tradition of the church, there are two sacraments that our Lord gave us, baptism and communion. But there are also these other, these other things, these other ways of life that we call sacraments of the church, holy parts of the Christian life that draw us closer to God. They're not on the same level as those two that the Lord gave us, but they're holy nonetheless. And marriage is one of those. The sacraments are there to move us towards Jesus, to, to point all of the church toward Jesus, even for those of us that aren't called to marriage. And marriage is, is no exception. So how does marriage point us to Christ? A couple things. The first is, uh, I like the way that Alexander Schmemann, he's an Orthodox theologian, puts it. He says that um, he divides marriage into two parts. He says there's the cross of marriage and the glory of marriage, or the crown of marriage, the way of suffering and the way of glory. Now, calling part of marriage the way of the cross might sound a little odd, but it's actually pretty straightforward. To make marriage work requires a continual willingness to die to self. This isn't what the world teaches with its fixation on self-fulfillment and the freedom to be me. Uh, but by the way, if, if you'd like to ruin your marriage, wake up every morning and ask yourself, do I feel fulfilled in this relationship? It's, it's not a good idea. Maybe at 3 a.m. when you're changing a diaper, think, is this my best life? It's not. That's not the point of marriage. No, if your marriage is going to survive at all, you're going to have to be willing to die to yourself. You're going to have to forgive. You're going to have to repent and seek forgiveness. Ask anyone who's been married for a while. Marriage will force you to face what's worst in yourself. And then you have to decide what to do about that. That's the cross. That's why the catechism says that marriage is there for mutual sanctification. It's a purifying agent. So marriage calls us to holiness by forcing us to address or at least giving us the opportunity to address what is not holy in us. That's the first part. But there's also another way in which the sacrament of marriage works, and this is where we're sort of heading today. Marriage is an image. Like I said earlier, marriage is a holy icon, a reality in the world, but nevertheless an image of a greater reality of Christ and his church. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us, right? Who, who himself was celibate, but he was writing to them about marriage in Ephesians, and he says... He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what I want you to see. Just as every marriage is a microcosm, a, sort of a repetition or a, a small-scale reproduction of what happened in Eden, so what happened in Eden is itself a small-scale reproduction of Christ and the church. Just as every marriage is a, is a microcosm of what happened in Eden what happened in Eden is a microcosm of Christ and the church. Just as Adam is brought to Eden, so the Lord journeys to Jerusalem. Just as Adam is unable to find a suitable partner, so the Lord, when he journeys to Jerusalem, is met again and again with distrust, disbelief. And just as Adam had to lay down, there's a poetic resonance here, to lay down, so the Lord laid down his life, right? Sleeping and death, there's, there's a, a symbolic parallel there. And when he had been split open at the side, the father drew forth from Christ a portion of his very being, his presence, the water and blood of birth, the water of baptism, and the blood of communion. 
and fashioned it into the church, which is called at the same time the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. There's that same material and yet distinct. But this is a little, this can strike us a little absurd. What do, what do we mean by calling the church the body of Christ? In what way is the church similar to Christ? Because we know Christ and we know the church, right? And, and we've seen Twitter or Facebook or any social media for the last like 2,000 years. The gulf between those two is about as far as the gulf between what marriage should be like and what our marriages often are like. So in what way do we say that the church is the body of Christ? And, you know, there's a way in which I'd say that this is a problem that's true even of the first couple, right? In Genesis 2, we have this great picture of what marriage should be like. But what happens by the end of Genesis 3? They're betraying and accusing each other. Right? They're closed off from each other. Uh, so two words about that. The first is that just as the first couple fails to represent the sort of the, the aspiration of what marriage should be like, right? we're all there. None of our relationships are that way. Okay? Uh, humanity, men and women, show themselves incapable of fulfilling their purpose. None of us have lived up to that command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and bring it under the dominion of God. Um, we fail to be helpers fit for one another. And like the text says, let us make a suitable helper or make a helper fit for Adam. That phrase, by the way, doesn't mean, when we say helper in English, uh, the problem is when we say helper, we mean someone that's auxiliary but not essential, okay? So my kids help me like clean the garage, right? I don't need them there. A few months ago, I hired a teenager to come help me move some limbs out of the backyard. He didn't have to be there, uh, but it made things easier. Okay, that's not what that's not what that phrase in Hebrew means. That's an English thing, okay? In Hebrew, the, um, the phrase means someone that provides over against Adam what Adam lacks, what Adam doesn't have. It means a savior. And do you know what happens to that phrase? It keeps getting used in the Bible, but it's not applied to the woman from then on. The entity it's most applied to is to God in his relationship with Israel. God is the helper of Israel, not auxiliary and unessential, right? God is the one that makes up for what we lack. So there's a way in which that the creation of the woman, we already see this foreshadowing of God is going to have to take this role on himself. Right from the very beginning, we're insufficient for one another. God binds us to himself because that was the only way we were ever going to fulfill his command and that brings me to my second point about the absurdity of saying the church is somehow made a like being to Christ or that we're the body of Christ, which is true, but it feels absurd. What was the thing that, Eve, that made Eve a being like Adam? What was it about? Remember, we said the animals couldn't do it. It's there in verse 7, the Lord breathed into Adam. And, you know, if we take this through the Latin, maybe it makes a little more sense. The Lord aspirated into Adam, spirit. The Lord breathed into Adam. He put his spirit, his breath into Adam. And, what God do, and God does that with the church when the church is formed, right? He sends his spirit. That's the animating principle of the church. It's what makes the church the church is the Holy Spirit of God. It's the spirit that unites us to Christ. And it's the work of the spirit, that continual process of being made more and more holy, which purifies the church until one day she's presented before Christ as a pure bride. 
Now, I started talking today by, I started today by talking about children, right? About my boy Peter and the rhythmic pattern by which we call out to one another and in a way create one another. And that was, of course, intentional. For the church, the sacrament of marriage has always been tethered to the idea of children, to the creation of persons in the image of God. And of course, that, that reality is something that we imperfectly represent, right? Our marriages don't always look like an icon of the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, but it, it gets fulfilled in Christ and the church. The church is the perfect generative community, right? Not, and I don't mean the church is in sort of our church here right now, but the church in sort of its ultimate fulfillment is that community. What does the Hebrews passage say? It says, I and the children whom you have given me. Each of us are sons and daughters of that relationship between Christ and the church. The, the other thing I'll say about this right, right before we end is I want you to understand this representation that happens here with communion, right? And I mentioned that earlier about the birth of the church and the side of Christ. We're, we're in a wedding chapel right now, right? And there are, there are lots of weddings here. Uh, some of you may have been married here. Um, and when we go to communion, we're going to image something that we do in weddings, which is, you know, in a wedding, the door is, you know, the groom stands here and the door is opened and the bride walks down, Right? And, uh, and she comes and she meets the groom here. And in a few minutes, we're going to have communion, and you're each going to walk down to meet your Savior, right? To, to have um, this moment where you are united with Christ by receiving the gifts of God for the people of God, right? And there's, there's, that imagery is intentional there. So I'd invite you to reflect on that today. We're not all called to marriage, but we're all called to the icon of marriage, Right? We're all called to the thing that marriage represents, which is this union of Christ and the church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.